0: Let's open our Bibles this evening to 2 Kings. We're going to look at the 6th chapter. and uh, We may get through just the first 23 verses. I think that's a a good place for us to stop uh, thematically. So let's um, take a look at it. Remember, this section of the Scripture is the ministry of Elisha, the, um, the successor of Elijah, the prophet and Elisha was there when Elijah ascended to heaven, and remember that, that uh, Elisha wanted the, the benefit, the blessing, of receiving a double portion of Elijah's blessing. and Elijah said, "Well, if you're there, when the Lord takes me away in that chariot of fire, then it will be uh, done to you." And so uh, he was there when that happened. And, uh, and as we look through the scriptures, especially the, the area that we're in tonight, we will see that God does bring that to pass. It's recorded for us at least, uh, 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 at least more than um, half or, or, or almost double uh, the number of things that God done had done through the life of Elisha, and, and that's still unfolding before us. But uh, the Lord honors his word, doesn't he? He honors his word. He can never return back on it because, remember, God knows all things. So if he does know all things, like the Bible tells us, then he can't be hoodwinked. He can't, be, he can't get the facts wrong because he, he knows the very things that we're going to speak. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms because it speaks about God's omnipresence and also his omniscience, the fact that he is all way, all, everywhere at the same time and he also knows all things. He can't learn anything because he knows all things. And I love the, the frightful thing that David says in Psalm 139. He says, Lord, you know my thoughts afar off. Before I even speak, you know them all together. And, and see, that's the God we serve. We don't serve an impotent God who, who doesn't understand, who doesn't see things in advance. No, he sees everything plain before him and that's why he can write the word of God and he can record for it and get this God could have just recorded this with his own hand in a sense and said I don't want man to touch this at all I don't want to be any human element or agent involved in my word my communication to my creation to the people that I love that I've created I'm going to do it all myself because there's too much liability involved I can agree with that, (laughs) because as soon as I open my mouth, I'm a liability, and I understand that. But God's word will not return void. It will always accomplish what he purposes, and he even uses imperfect vessels like me and like you. And that's just a mystery to me that I'll never chase. I'll never run after that and try and figure it out, because that's just the way it is. But such is the nature of God. He's a loving God and he wants us to be involved in all of this. And that's why he asks us to pray for things that he's going to do. And yet, the scary thing also is, is that if we don't pray, sometimes those things don't come to pass. And that's an even scarier thing. And that, re- that reminds me of my responsibility, my great joy, my great uh, pleasure to enter into prayer And to pray for those things that are on God's heart. To discern his heart. And then to pray for the things that are on God's heart. So important for us to do. Especially today, now more than ever. Ever before, in our history, in the church, and in our country, now, church, this is our time to shine. It really is. I believe that. I think we've come to such a time as this. And what will the church of God do? And that's a question I'll leave with you to ponder. But let's look at the first seven verses, and we're going to take this in chunks because I think thematically you'll understand why we're doing that. Let's just look at the first seven verses, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice what it says. It says, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. And so he answered, and he said, Go. And then one said, "'Please consent to go with your servants.' And he answered, "'I will go.' So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe fell into the water, and he cried out and said, "'Alas, master, for it was borrowed.' And so the man of God said, "'Where did it fall?' And he showed him the place. And so he cut off a stick, and he threw it in there, and he made the iron float." Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. And so he reached out his hand and he took it. You know, as, as we read passages like this, it's really interesting, isn't it? We think of what, uh, it just defies all gravity. It defies logic. It defies even the physics that God has ordained, the, the very laws of nature that God has set in place God himself can, can defy those things if he so chooses. And honestly, he's the only one who can. I, I cannot do that unless he causes me to. He did it with Moses, didn't he? He says, Moses, as they were hemmed in there at the, in the desert, and the mountains are all around them, and they've got this passageway, and all that's before him is the Red Sea. And he, and he, and he says to Moses, Moses, stop looking around. Put out your rod and stand there and put out the, the rod, and I will part the sea. And he did, (laughs) defying the laws of gravity and physics. It's not possible, except for God. Now, do you believe that? I believe that. Why? Because God has never failed me, and God has never gone back on his word, he's always been faithful. And so when we read something like this, you know, the, the liberal scholars like to dismiss it and try to you know, finagle away that somehow through science it, you know, this happened, or maybe it really wasn't a twig, maybe he threw in something, maybe there's lead in it, and you know, who knows, you know, the, the thing somehow magnetically attracted to the something. I, you know, there's all kinds of excuses that people may give, but see, I believe, and I, I serve a big God, I don't serve this little God. And unfortunately, in the church in America, our God is often this God, who's just this little, measly little guy. That when we are in trouble, we come and we we rub the lamp and we're like, "Lord, show help us! I'm in so much trouble!" And you know, you're you're rubbing the lamp, trying to get him to do something like a like a rabbit's foot or a talisman. And God says, "I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be the one that you run to when you're in trouble." Yes, you can run to God, and you know what? We should. But don't think God is just going to bail us out. And often he does in his grace, and I'm so glad for that. But we need to remember who he is. He is almighty God. He is bigger than the heavens. The heavens can't contain him. And that's the God I serve, one who can speak and things come into existence when there was no matter to even begin. Can you imagine that? That would be like standing here and God creating a cheeseburger, a double cheeseburger with provolone cheese, or no, cheddar, let's make it cheddar, and a lettuce and tomato, nice and juicy and thick patties, right? Right here, right now, my way, right away, right? And God's going, well, I could do that, but I'm not going to. What's the purpose, Rob, so you can get fat? When God does things, he does them for a reason, he does, thing, he does miracles not to impress anybody. He does miracles to help, to bless, to show his glory. At times when he chooses, it's, it's at his bidding, not mine. And so notice the sons of the prophets. Remember, Elisha had a school of prophets in different towns throughout Israel. And we believe that the place where he was at here was probably in Jericho because the sons of the prophets said, you know, we're living here and we're dwelling with you, but now we're getting so numerous that this place is too small. And so please let us go to the Jordan and take every man a beam from there. Now, Jericho, if you've been to Israel with us, you know Jericho is right along the the mountainside. It's it's literally right there uh, before you ascend through the mountains. There's a road that goes all the way up to Mount Zion. But right over here, there's a mountain range. And right over here in the Jordan Valley, right next to the mountain is Jericho. And and then the the Jordan River runs right through here in the Jordan Plain. So it's very easy for them just to walk across this plain for a couple miles and get right to the Jordan River. And they go there. Why? Because there's trees there. Why? Because there's water there. All along the the river, there's trees. Very naturally, because that's where the trees will get their water from. And the biggest, strongest trees are going to be where the water is. And, you know, I think of myself as one of those trees. You know, I want to be next to the water. And the water is like the Word of God, isn't it? It's, it's, it's our nutrient. It's the thing that we need more than anything. More than, you can go without food for 30 or 40 days, but you can't go without water that long unless God does something in you. Water is what we need every single day, and the water of the word of God, it cleanses us, it it nourishes us, it gives us everything we need. So important for us to stay. But notice, let us go to the Jordan, let every man take a beam from there. I'd have you underline the word beam because um, it's important that you do, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. Every man will take a beam from there and let us make a place where, there, notice, where we may dwell. So now they, they were in Jericho, now they're going to build this place right by the Jordan River. What a great place to do it. And this word beam literally means a rafter. It, it means a, a beam, like a big beam of wood. And it's important that we understand that because that's how you build things is with, not with twigs, but with big beams, rafters. That's really the meaning of it. So um, notice in verse 3, it says, So then one said to him, please consent to go with your servants. And, And I love this. They wanted to be with their master. They wanted to be with the one who is walking close to God. Do you have somebody that is close to you? that loves the Lord with all of their heart? Are, are you, do you spend time with them? Or what company do you keep? You know, these men loved Elisha so much. And what was it about Elisha that attracted them? It was his godliness. It was his relationship with God. It was what made him such a wonderful human being. And see, that's what the world needs to see in each of us. People that are just sold out for Christ, and loving him, and willing to do anything for him. And you become beautiful. The more we walk like Christ, the more we submit to him, the more we're obedient to him, the more we allow him to work in and through our lives, our lives become something beautiful. Because I don't know about you, but before I came to Christ, my life was a mess. I wasn't beautiful at all. There was nothing about me. In fact, you look up, you know, dunce in the dictionary, and there'd be a picture of me. But Christ, in him, he makes all things beautiful. And he's made all of you beautiful. You know, as I look out and I see all of you, he's made every one of you. Sorry, guys, I don't mean to make you feel weird, but I'm, don't worry, I'm not weird. But, uh, you know, we're all beautiful in his sight, right? We're all beautiful, so they said, "'Please consent to go with your servants.'" And so he says, "'Okay, I'll go.'" So we went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but as they were cutting down the tree, the iron axe fell into the water, and the young man cried, "'Alas, master, it was borrowed.'" I borrowed this from my neighbor, and, and just like any Bible student, they were poor, <laughs> they didn't have any money they couldn't go down to Home Depot and buy a you know one of those nice awls that have like the you know the the wedge where you can you know cut wood and you can also break things apart it was you know they didn't have any money and so it was a bigger deal to lose something like that. And in Exodus chapter 22, verse 14, it says this, And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and of course it's speaking here about livestock, but the idea is any possession, and it becomes injured or it dies, the owner of it, not being with it, he shall surely make it good. And so he knows that if he loses this axe head, he's got to replace it. I remember a neighbor behind me, a really wonderful fellow, I was rototilling a garden in the back of our house, and he had this old rototiller. Have anybody, any guy used a rototiller before? They're beasts. You feel like you're strapping yourself onto a bull because you put that thing on and you're, you're holding it back. It's like, a, it's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex going forward. And you're, just, you're harnessing it, you're trying to hold it down, and your arms are hurting. It's very painful. Don't do it. But in this instance, I was using it, and the belt broke on the, on the machine. And so I could have just given it back to my neighbor and said, you know, sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then he doesn't use it for a while, and then he finds out that the belt is broke. But, you know, I, just like this says, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to do, I love my neighbor. He's a great Christian man. I love him, respect him. So what do I do? I get a belt. And I'm not a mechanic, so I take the cover off and it looks like just one little bolt. I I loosen the bolt, the little thing goes down like this. I put a new one on, I put it back up, I tighten it back up and it worked. And I'm like, I was like, thanks God, I, I don't know how I did this. But he allowed me to do it. But you know, it was his responsibility to fix this problem, right? So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place, so he cut down a stick, Underline that word because that's a different word from beam in verse 2. Very different. This literally means a piece of wood, but the idea is something much smaller than the beam that they were cutting out for the rafters. You, You got me, right? You understand? And so, and so it, it seems that this stick is uh, not the same. Uh, it's a different word. So therefore, he said, "Pick it up for yourself." And so he took out his hand and he picked it up. And no doubt, a miracle. You know, this the axe head would float just like the twig or whatever that Elisha had thrown into the water. You know, and some have tried again to explain this away by um, implying some kind of other scientific means, but. You know this, right? Uh, if you throw something in water, especially if it's a small body of water, if you throw something into the water, what happens? Does the water lessen or does it go up? It goes up because you're displacing the water, right? You've learned that in science class. And You take a, a glass full of water and you put a bunch of rocks in it. The water level goes up because it's displacing the water, And so, if anything, this was actually going to make it harder. And of course, we're talking about the Jordan River, so whatever he threw in, regardless of how big the branch was, it's not going to really measure very much. But that wasn't the point. He throws it in, and the reverse of the laws of nature occur. Those things are heavy, several pounds in weight. Are they going to just rise to the surface? But it defied nature. You know, it's like Elijah when he was facing off with the 450 prophets of Baal. What did he do? He defied nature. He took water seven times and doused the altar seven times. He let the, the, the Baal worshipers just light, you know, have their thing and, and, and not douse it with water. But Elijah said, no, if God's going to do this, it doesn't matter how much water you put on this thing. You could dump the Indian Ocean on this and it's going to light up when God strikes it. And sure enough, he does. So Elijah wasn't even worried. He says, you know, I don't know, just put a flame retardant on it. Take some of that powder that they spray over California wildfires, spread it all over the thing, just pepper it, see what happens. (laughs) But it defies the laws of nature because God created those laws and he's able to defy them at his will. In Exodus chapter 15, you don't have to go there, but I'd like to read something to you because... I want to just develop this theme a little bit with this wood because I think there's something here for us and it's something that I think you'll see, hopefully. So in Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, found no water, so when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of the place is called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and he tested them. And uh, although we have to be careful about spiritualizing scripture, I'd like to take a little liberty with this. Because as we looked at what we just read in Exodus, and as we saw what Elisha did with the wood, throwing it in the water. Because here's, you know, with Moses taking the wood and throwing it into a bitter water. Here we have a, a man's calamity happening, and wood is applied to this calamity, and it brings deliverance. And uh, I think you kind of probably know where I'm going because in the in the Bible there are these things called types, and I can see a wonderful type here. It's not perfect. But I think it's interesting to notice because in the passage we read in Exodus, the waters of Mara could typify our life before we came to Christ. It was just bitterness. Our life was bitter. Our life was a mess. And then the the tree that Moses cast into the water, that made the water sweet, that is like eternal life that was given to us by the death of Jesus. On what? The tree. On the cross. The wood that Christ died upon. There was nothing special about the wood, but what happened on that piece of wood was something that changed the date that we observe today. Notice that. Well, oh, we don't believe in God. Well, what's the date today? Twenty twenty two. What does that mean? Well, in the Latin, twenty twenty two, anno domine, in the year of our Lord. So, what do you say about that? Are you going to change the date? Now, because you don't like Jesus, his death and his resurrection and his ascension was so significant that it changed, his his birth changed the way we relate to dated events in history. And no one has dared to try and go and change it. How important is it? Even the world. But now the scholars, you know, if if you've ever watched uh, anything like on the History Channel or something like that, they always like to take Christ out of the picture now. They'll say, well, it was 450 BCE, and then, you know, the the Jerusalem, when it was destroyed, it was 70 A.C.E., you know, before the Common Era or after the Common Era. And I'm like, you know, you really need Jesus, Seriously, that's the way they revert to it, because they get Christ out of the picture. But you can't get Christ out of the picture. Neither should we. But this tree that Jesus died on, we know that he carried that uh, a patibulum. It was a 75 to 125 pound piece of wood that they would... Uh, strap on him and that was what he carried to Golgotha. And then they would finally lay him down there and they would drive those Roman nails through his 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 wrists right in here and they would they would go just on the other side so they didn't hit the the vein, the, the, the artery, and they would drive them in there and then his feet and they would fasten him and they would stick him up on the stipes, which was the tree that was in the ground, forming a cross. So Jesus hung On that cross and when the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross and all that he accomplished on it, certainly the forgiveness of sin, the eternal life, the joy, when it's applied to our lives, what does he bring? He brings healing and true joy to us. And it's not dependent on our externals or circumstances. Even Isaiah 53, it says, Surely it says, um, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So by his stripes on the cross, we are healed. We are Rapha. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He heals us. And in both cases, in Exodus 15 and in this case of Elisha throwing in the twig, the wood into the water, what did it do? The results of both of these things brought healing or brought deliverance in the lives of the children of Israel, as well as for Elisha and this servant with the borrowed axe. The wood applied, the cross applied. Whenever the cross is applied, there's healing, there's deliverance. And it's also a good proof text to, with the idea that God's not only concerned about the small and seemingly insignificant things, but also for the huge monumental things that we're going to look at next in this chapter. But I do want to share with you, uh, I love types in the Bible, and there's a lot of them. But types in the Bible confirm or add further weight to truths that God has clearly spoken in his word. Because God and his word, he, it's doctrinal truth, and types are only reflections of his revealed written truth in the Bible. So we should never build doctrine on a type in the Bible, because by its definition, a type points to the original. It points to the real thing. So types may not be perfect, and this is not, what I share with you now is not a perfect type, but it's an interesting type, because there's deliverance, there's healing, and certainly these young men were delivered. Let's go and let's look at verses 8 now through uh, verses 23. Now notice, so now a completely different thing. It says, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this piece, or pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there, And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants, and he said to them, "'Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel?' And one of the servants says, none, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's kind of interesting. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. So now the king of Syria wants to kidnap or capture Elisha. And so he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is at Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. Wow, for one man, isn't that crazy? Of course, he was going into territory that uh, was enemy territory as far as Syria was concerned. So at any time, they could have a hot battle on their hands. So, So they go and they send this military regiment to Elisha's home. And so he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night, notice, and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what should we do? And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to him, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was, when they had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and saw, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. And not only inside Samaria, in the capital city of Israel. And no doubt surrounded by the Israeli army. I don't know about you guys, but if you know anything about the Israeli army, they've always been really good at what they do. Even today, they're one of the best. My brother, who was in uh, law enforcement for many years, uh, guys from the uh, Israel will come over and show them shooting techniques. You know, show them how to shoot a gun and the right way to hold it, and all kinds of different things and little tricks and tips. and And, and the guys are just like, "Where did this guy come from?" And it works. You know, all these little techniques were, were, you know, bringing their pattern of bullets from here down to like this. I think they know something about warfare. Every single day they have to deal with it. And did you hear today uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is now the new prime minister? I'm really happy about that. So, going on, he struck them a blindness. And so there they are, he led them to Samaria. And it says, verse 21 Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Pretty interesting, isn't it? We're going to look at this, and it's really amazing what the Lord does here. And this, um, this king of Syria, going back in verse 8 now, we believe that this is Ben-Hadad 1 or Ben-Hadad 2, his son. And they were, you know, they labeled them just 1 and 2. Ben-Hadad is really a title, and so whether this is the first Ben-Hadad or the second, we really don't know. There's some differences of opinion, but it doesn't really matter. But notice how fickle the king of Syria really is. Remember just a chapter prior to this that Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, he comes, he gets wind that this prophet Elijah is able to heal. And so he goes down to Elisha and this commander of the Syrian army is struck with leprosy. And remember, Elisha didn't even come out to greet the man. He told Gehazi, he says, go out and tell him to wash in the Jordan seven times. Just dip himself seven times and he'll be healed. And Naaman was furious. He's like, do you know who I am? I came all the way from Syria. You're not even going to come out and shake my hand? He was mad. But his servant says, if he would have told you to to climb a 10-foot tree and and, do this or something, wouldn't you have done it? Well, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. So he does. He goes down, he gets healed, and now this commander is made whole again, and he goes back to Syria, and no doubt the king of Syria is going, Wow, this is really amazing. I got my guy back, he's healed. You'd think that would soften his heart toward Israel, but such is the fickle heart of a a king of a neighboring country. So he comes against him again, and and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And and then the man of God, verse 9, sent to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel at this time, we believe, is Joram, the, the king of Israel, who reigned from about 852 to 841 B.C., and uh, the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, "Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down here." And so the king of Israel sent someone down to the place, and sure enough, that's wh- what happened. And he did it more than once or twice. And so therefore, verse 11, the heart of the king of Syria, was greatly troubled by this thing. And so finally he gets his guys all around him, and he's like, "Who's the mole? Which one of you is selling is, is a sellout here?" Which one of you was paid off to, to give intelligence to the king of Israel? And he had every reason to be angry because something's amiss. Because every time we go there and we're about ready to go into battle, they already know we're coming and they're ready. And how is this possible? This was before cell phones. It wasn't like, you know, Elisha was texting the king and going, he's on the move, he's on the move. He just crossed over, you know. He didn't have any of that. It was just God and the prophet. I love that. Can God speak to you? Can he speak to you in wonderful ways? I know that he does. Cuz some of you have told me and God speaks to me. I wish it was every single day in the sense of of hearing an audible voice from God, you know, but oftentimes it's not like that. He speaks to me through his word. He speaks to me in my heart and there have been a couple times where literally it was nearly I would, I would believe that it was audible because it was so clear and so loud in my head that I really thought that somebody that he spoke to me. And then I, I act upon it and find out, wow, that was you. What a miracle that is. So one of his servants says, no one's a mole here, my king, but Elisha, who is in Israel, he tells the kings the words that are in your bedroom. And so Elisha was the first Mossad agent. He, and this was before all the high-tech audio and video equipment that the Mossad have now. And uh, it reminds me of a gentleman. Uh, there's a book that I bought in Israel. It's called Our Man in Damascus. And it's the, it's the history of Eli Cohn, And he was an Israeli spy who infiltrated the Syrian, and, and, and I'm not kidding, the Syrian government in the 60s. And he was able to work his way up to where he was literally right next to the king. And at night and at different times, he was uh, sending back uh, through different, you know, primitive uh, intelligence information back to Israel stating what they're going to do. And it was instrumental, his intelligence was instrumental in the 67 war, of, you know, uh, what he was sharing with them gave the Israeli army an edge a significant edge over their enemy that was bent on destroying them. And finally they find out who he is, and here's a picture of him hanging in Damascus. They finally find him, and they hang him on public television. The whole thing was recorded, but this, it's a really interesting read. It's not a really long book, but it's called Our Man in Damascus, Eli Cohen by Eli Ben-Hanan, but a really great read, um, but it's fantastic. But it was a very similar thing. You know, except he was using instruments uh, and technology to give the whereabouts of where the Syrian army was. And God blessed it. God blessed this man. And he saved many Israelis by what he was doing, knowing that if he got caught, he would be killed. And he knew that. His wife knew that. And so verse 13, he says, go and see where he is, the Syrian king says, and that I may send him and I want to get him. And it was told that he was in Dothan. Dothan is about 12 miles northeast of Samaria, the capital city of of Israel. So therefore he sent horses and chariots, a great army, came by night, surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And he's like, what are we going to do now? Now you remember. It seems that this servant of Elisha here is different from Gehazi, because we know that Gehazi was Elisha's servant. But Gehazi, remember, contracted leprosy due to his his lying and his um, his uh, his uh, his greed. Remember, in in the fifth chapter, he wanted that gold and that silver and those changes of clothing, and the Lord struck him. It tells us in 2 Kings five twenty seven that this. This Elisha's right-hand man, this Gehazi, says the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. So we believe that this is a whole different uh, servant that is now serving alongside Elisha. So verse 16, he answered, he says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I, I love this because Elisha, God's representative... He knew who was in control. It wasn't the Syrian army, but it is and always has been God Almighty. He is in control. He's still in control. He's never ceased to not be in control. God knows all things. In fact, it may take us by surprise, events may take us by surprise, but nothing surprises God in 1 John chapter 4, remember what it said in verse 4. It says, Because he says, You are of God, little children, John the apostle says to them, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Elisha knew who was in control. And, and like us, we have this, the Spirit of God dwelling in us. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. And greater is he, the Spirit of God that's in you, than he that is in the world, the Spirit of Antichrist that's all around us that is showing himself. The Spirit of Antichrist, anyway, is all over the place. We see it in the Penfield sub, uh, school system. We see it in all the colleges and the universities. We see it in the Oval Office. The spirit of Antichrist. We see it at the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. But Elisha says, there's many more with us than that are with them. Because we need to remember that God takes care of his own, doesn't he? He's jealous over you and me. He loves us with a, a jealous love. Because he paid the price. And if he paid the price for you, your soul is so significant to him. Your soul is priceless to him. And that's why it took a priceless blood to atone for your sin and for my sin. It was only the blood of Christ, the very blood of God. Only that could atone for my sin and keep me out of hell. If I would believe in him. And yet there are people who don't believe in him. But it's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? But you plus God is victory. Never forget that. You plus God is victory. However, you minus God in your life is that you're a dismal failure. And such was my life for 24 years a dismal failure. I was without God. I didn't want anything to do with God. I, I was very content in doing my own thing, thank you very much. I wanted to do my own way, my own way. I did it my way. You know, I mean, that, that's, that was my heart. I'm going to do things my way. And God says, okay, Rob, if you want to do it, th- see how it works for you. I'll be waiting. Do, 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 do. And then I start to scream and cry. <laughs> I messed everything up. And he's like, are you going to listen? Okay, Lord, i am listen. And then I finally give it up. Give my heart to him. And boy, what a great ride it's been. Are you so blessed and happy that you've given your heart to Christ? Isn't the greatest thing? I mean, is there anything greater in the world? I mean, forget about all the money in the world. I could care less. It's all going to burn. But you know what? I've got a hope in my heart, and you do too, that after this world is dissolved with fervent heat one day, that we're going to inherit him. We're going to inherit glory. And folks, if that doesn't get you standing on your feet, I don't know what will. That's the greatest thing. Let it charge your batteries. Remember who God is and remember who you are. You're a child of God. Even in your midst of your corruption, your own laziness, maybe even in your sin, God still loves you, and we need to turn from those things and and come to him, and he's willing to receive us. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful to forgive us, then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any other deal going that's better than that? There's nothing. There's nothing. They can have it all. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus, right? Isn't that the truth? But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Paul even said to the Romans in Romans 8:31, "What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall how shall we not with him also, or how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He gives us good things." may not be the things that your flesh wants, but everything that God has done, even when it's caused me pain, I look back on it and I'm like, I'm so thankful, God, that you allowed me to go through this difficulty. I didn't like it, I hated it, and I even was angry with you, honestly. But once I got through it, I realized how you refined me, how you, you broke this, this, this rebellious heart. You broke my heart. Anybody had their heart broken? Yeah, he allows it. To refine us, to get our eyes off of whatever it was that we were admiring so much. And he's like, Rob, all these things are going to fail you. All of your worldly possessions, whatever they—I don't have that many—but whatever it is, you know, all these things are going to go away. Even all the friends and the people that you love and think love you—you you know, one word and they're gone. You know, but I'll never leave you. But Lord, it's so hard. And then you lose a loved one, and you lose another loved one, then you lose—you you, know—you lose another loved one, and you're like, God, I'm the only one left. He's like, Rob, I love you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm all you need. And do I believe it? I believe it now more than I ever have. Because they can take away everything. But if I got Him, that's it. It's all I need. It's all I want. Everything else is false, everything else is fake. But He is real because He changed my heart, He changed your heart. He changed me. He took me from a, from a place that I didn't even want to, I didn't even know where I was. I was completely clueless in Seattle. He took me out of, I mean, I, was, I didn't live in Seattle. I lived in Florida, but you get the point. But he took me out of a place, and you too. He took us out of these awful places that we were, when we didn't even ask. He came to me in the middle of my mess, and I wasn't even looking for him. He sought me out and wooed my heart to him. What Great God is it that we serve? You know, I wonder, you know, it's like, what is man that you're mindful of? And what is the Son of Man that you visit him? I am not worthy, God. And he's like, I know, but I am. And you're mine. And I call you by name. Great stuff, isn't it? It's awesome. It's awesome. So Elisha prayed, verse 17. He says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes. Open my servant's eyes. The Lord opened his eyes of the young man. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots. So now, here, here is the house of Elisha and his servant, and the Syrian army is all around here, and now there's a bigger army surrounding all of them. Ooh, things have changed. All of a sudden, I'm no longer quaking in my boots or in my sandals. Now I'm thinking to myself, There's nothing they can do to us. There's nothing that they can do. And in fact, verses 8 through 23, what we really see is the real power behind the scenes because there is a spiritual battle, and right now we are in the midst of it like never before. A spiritual battle. Are you aware there's a spiritual battle? Are you aware of spiritual attack? Are you aware of, uh, of these things that are at force against you? Do you feel it? Have you experienced it in the workforce? Have you experienced it in the world when you go up to share with somebody and you feel this resistance to mention the name of Jesus? That spiritual warfare going on because the enemy's right in your face going, you don't have it in you to speak. In fact, you, you sinned this morning. How can you speak the name of God? And then for you to have the chutzpah to say, you know what, I did sin. I said something to somebody I shouldn't have said, but God forgave me. Get out of my way because I'm going to tell that person that Jesus loves them and the enemy will always be barking at you. Your flesh will be barking at you. But what does Ephesians tell us? In Ephesians 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to stand in the evil day and having done all just to stand and notice this list of things that he gives and all of them are defensive all of them are just for us to stand and and to take it and yet there's one thing there's one article in this whole list that is an offensive tool and it's the sword of the spirit and what is it that's the word of god this right here is the most important tool you have in the world sell your house and everything you have if you have this you're going to be all right because this is the thing This, God's word, is everything. Stand therefore, having your waist girded about with truth, having put on the the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, the only offensive weapon in our spiritual warfare, which is the word of God. And praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. Boy, do we need to persevere today because perseverance and fortitude is what we need because Folks, things are going to get a lot more challenging as we go on in history in this country. We may get a reprieve on November 8th. We may get a little bit of a reprieve and we may breathe a sigh of relief and go, Oh, I'm so glad. But do you understand that God never promised us that? Ultimately, he says, you will be persecuted. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is our lot. That is what we can expect, is persecution. Now, when that occurs in this country, I don't know. We've had some light persecution. But nothing compared to the first century Christians and all the things that they endured, running for their lives, hiding in caves, being chased down by the Romans, fed the lions... I've been in those places, I've been in those rocks along the Jordan Valley, the whole whole side of the mountain range on both sides are, are littered with caves where people would hide from the Romans, they would hide. In Masada, they would hide. In Daniel chapter 10, it records for us something interesting too about this spiritual warfare. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 2, it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, and I ate no pleasant food, no meat, nor wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And then it goes on, and I'm just paraphrasing here. He gets this vision who very likely could be Christ there on the side of the river, but suddenly, verse 10, a hand touched me, and we don't believe that this hand was Jesus at all, but it was a hand of an angel touched me and made me tremble on my knees, and and I I, I was on the palms of my hands and my feet, or my hands and my knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And now I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. Days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And so this, 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 this angel of God is withstood by these demonic powers in Persia for 21 days. And he's, he told Daniel, Daniel, I, we heard this. God heard this. I was dispatched at that time and it took me three weeks to get to you. Michael, the archangel, he came to help me and finally broke through. Now, God was certainly aware of all of that. So what was Daniel doing that whole time of those three weeks? God was trying him, wasn't he? He was using that time, that three weeks, to really test Daniel. Are you going to be faithful, Daniel, to pray night and day? Are you going to continue to to hold true? And Daniel's like, "I'm, I'm, I'm praying until the Lord tells me to shut up. And he did. But these spiritual entities, they're very real. They're very real. The spiritual warfare is real. The battles that we see going on in our country, in our world right now, politically, and in the school systems are all the result of a greater spiritual battle that is being played out. There's a battle for power for the hearts and the minds of young people, especially our kids in the public schools. If you are ever wondering what hill to die on, the battle for our kids in the schools is perhaps the biggest one. Perhaps the biggest one. Certainly one of the top few. Satan has infiltrated the schools, boardrooms, school boards, teachers' unions wreaking havoc on our kids, teaching them critical race theory, LGBTQ and the gender nonsense that's destroying them. And are you going to be silent about this? Church in America? Are we going to be silent and just act like nothing's happening? Ought we not to be packing out those school board um, uh, meetings that they have, speaking publicly, boldly about the wickedness that they're doing, holding them accountable? I believe we should. The church was silent back in the 40s when Hitler was wreaking havoc upon you know, Germany and everywhere, or everywhere else. He was wreaking havoc on the Jews, and the church was silent. During the 50s, when Roe v. Wade was going through all that whole thing, what happened? The church was pretty much silent. Nobody. And and, and wonder of wonders, in the middle of the current administration, we have Roe v. Wade overturned. What an amazing thing. So when the Syrians came down to him, verse 18, so there is a spiritual battle, folks, and I'm of the opinion, and I believe this is true, Everything that we see physically is a result of something that is happening spiritually. Everything that is happening physically is a result of what is happening that we can't see. Because spirits sometimes will inhabit people, will sometimes aggravate people, will sometimes um, corrupt people. And everything we see is a result, the wars that we see, is that the result of God? Is that the result of good people who were born good? No, nobody was born good. But all of these things are spiritual, and, and they're, they're manifesting themselves in these awful things that we see, and abortion, we, and, 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 and hatred, and, and war, and all of these things. All of these things are the result of spiritual things, and it's heating up, and there's no, there's a good reason for that, because what does the Bible say? The Bible says that there's coming a time, and it hasn't happened yet, but there's coming a time when Satan will be booted out. He will no longer have access to heaven like he does now. He can go and accuse us before God night and day. The Bible tells us that. Job tells us that. But one day he's going to be kicked out, of the, and he will not be able to to go into heaven any longer. I think it's in Revelation chapter 12. Woe unto you, earth, for the devil has come down to you. He's full of wrath because he knows that his time is short. And oh, the world, the church will be removed when all of that is happening, thank God. But can you imagine what hell this earth is going to be when that happens? When he's no longer restrained and he is he's angry. And he's no longer to, able to ascend into the heavens like he is now. So the Assyrians came down and they prayed, uh, to the Lord and said, "Strike this people, I pray, with blindness." And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, "This is not the way; nor is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring them. I'll bring you to uh, the man whom you seek." But he led them to Samaria, right into the capital city. And so it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, "Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see." And certainly their eyes were open, realizing now they are in the capital city, surrounded. By the Israeli army. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, and this is the, every king is excited about this because, hey, guess what? You just hand delivered my enemy right to my doorstep. And so he's like, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? This is easy. We can take care of them right now. And if there was ever a perfect time for Israel to vanquish their aggressors, that was the time. Their enemies were blind, standing before them helpless. It wouldn't even be a fair fight. But he answered and said, you should not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with the sword or with the bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And I'll we'll finish with this. Um, uh, notice what it, James says, Jesus' half-brother. I love this. It says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And I love that. Because here they had him, they could have slaughtered him, and the king of Israel is salivating, going, just say the word, and we're gonna be on him with swords. And he's like, You don't know what spirit you're of. Didn't Jesus say that? In Luke chapter nine, verse fifty one. It came to pass when the times had come for him to be received up and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of Samaritans to prepare for him but they did not receive him because his face was set for his journey to Jerusalem and when his disciples James and John saw this they said, Lord, you want us to con- command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? And what did Jesus say? Same thing that Elisha said. He turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, you and I have enemies, but God sees people, and he would much rather save a life than take a life. But it's up to that person if they want to be saved, and he doesn't force anyone to accept him or not. It's a free will choice. And, you know, there's parts of me, I wish I didn't have free will, before I came to Christ, looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, right now I'd like for God to just make me a robot because I don't want free will anymore. I just want what you want, God. And, and I say that and I probably betray myself and the Lord's going, oh, Rob, you sound so pious, but in your heart you're such a rebel. You may think that, but you still want your own way. I'm still working in your life because you're a rascal. <laughs> if I made you a robot, where would the love be? but you come to me out of your own volition, out of your own heart. You come to me. And it really, what we see here um, that Elisha is doing with the king of Israel and the Syrian army is really the Beatitudes showing themselves in the Old Testament. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 12, whatever you want men to do to them, you do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And isn't that what now Elisha is doing? Isn't that what he's encouraging the king of Israel to do as well? The Beatitudes, before they were even spoken, the very heart of it we see in Elisha. And why is that? Well, very simply, Elisha was had the spirit of God upon him at least. He loved the Lord So then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. They went back to Ben-Hadad. And so the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now this is interesting because the very next verse tells us that now Syria is going to mount another attack against Israel. And so some time has gone on here. We don't know the exact number of years or how much time has transpired between verses 23 and 24, but there is some time until that kind of wore off. Isn't that funny how our feelings can kind of wear off? We have this great, you know, thing that we want to do, and, you know, it's like, you know, New Year's resolutions. You know, we have this thing, well, you know what, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, you know, after I spend, you know, till 2 o'clock in the morning abusing my body, and then I'm going to wake up the next morning, and I'm going to get on the treadmill, and I'm going to do it every single day at 6 6 a.m., and, you know, it lasts for about a day. And then you're like, oh, forget that. We have great intentions. The spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. But I love this, the Beatitudes in the Old Testament. The very spirit of God, who was Jesus himself, God incarnate, speaking these very things in Matthew that we just read. The very spirit of that was still working all throughout history. Mercy, mercy, mercy. What was it... Um, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's a good thing to remember for all of us. Never be too excited about getting your pound of flesh, for getting even. The real mark of a child of God is when you have the ability to get your pound of flesh, or you have the ability or the opportunity to get even, you don't take it. And instead you do something just the opposite, because that's so otherworldly. Everybody responds in the natural, you know, anybody, you know, can feel hatred and lash out in anger, but to have an enemy and then to not do that when the opportunity presents itself for you. Maybe something you've even waited for. I've waited 10 years for this moment and I should take it. And the devil's going, yeah, you should take it. And God is going, don't you dare take it. Why don't you just love on them? And tell them that God loves them. Tell them that you love them in spite of what happened. And you watch them melt right before you. And it's happened. People have done that. They had their moment for the pound of flesh. And then the moment comes. And they say, you know what? I am so sorry. I had every... My desire was to hurt you because of what you did to me many years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but you did something that hurt me very badly. And I haven't told you until now, but here it is. And now I have this opportunity, but you know what? God told me to not do it. He told me to love on you. And I am so sorry for holding a grudge and being so nasty to you. I tell you what, if there's a person who has air in their lungs and hears something like that, they're like... I can't believe what I'm hearing. And you may gain a soul for glory. But see, that's what it's about. Being used by God to reach others, to minister to them, to be examples, right? Elisha was a great example. So was Elijah. Godly examples. And see, that's what I hope I want to be. I want to be a godly example in this Crooked and perverse generation that we live in. I want to be different from everybody else. I don't want to be like the, the status quo. And, the, and, you know, even on Twitter, I'm, I'm amazed. I, sometimes I'll look at my Twitter feed and I see these Christians, profane, professing Christians, just being so nasty and hurtful and, and just rotten. And I'm like, no wonder the world hates Christians. I got to be different. If I don't have anything good to say, I'm not going to say it. There's things I want to say, but I don't. <laughs> it's called the Holy Spirit filter. <laughs> anyway, so be, be encouraged, you know, and remember that there is a battle, just like we saw with Elijah and the army surrounding. God is with you. He's Emmanuel, God with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, even to the end of the age. And we're getting close to that end of the age. And I just want to encourage you all to hang in there. Don't be fearful. Hang in there. Stay true to the word of God. Stay true to Christ. Let him have all of you. Don't be afraid to let him into every door of your heart. Give him the keys to every area in your life. In every door that's got shade in it, you open it wide open. And you say, Lord, you examine me. Search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting Oh, man, I tell you, there's nothing better than living a holy life. And it's something I desire, because I'm not always that way. I want that, and I thirst for it. It's good to thirst for it, isn't it? Do you thirst for righteousness? Because I believe the more we spend time in the Word, the more we spend time with Jesus, we're going to have that thirst. And we're like, Lord, I am so done with me. I'm so tired of this radical inside of me. I'm so sick of this nasty-hearted old person. It's got so many scars and anger and bitterness. Will you just vanquish it, Lord? Invite him to do it. Invite him to do it. And continue to invite him to do it. Let's do that. Right now, what do you say? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we invite you, Lord, as we look at the life of Elisha, and we see just recently in this passage, Lord, it could have been a, a great victory for Israel, easy victory, and yet, Lord, you changed his heart and restrained his hand from allowing the king of Israel to obliterate that army. And Lord, such were some of us. And and Lord, there's a nature within us that is opposed to that, Lord. We always want to get our pound of flesh. We want to get even. We want to prove to the world that we're right and they're wrong. And God, I pray that you would just deliver us from that tonight. That rather than being right or wrong, we would just be lovers of God and lovers of people, regardless of what they've done. And that's a tall order, God. Lord, you told us in Deuteronomy to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. And Lord, that is impossible without you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you tonight to just take, just take inventory of our life and our heart and just cleanse me and cleanse my brothers and sisters, Lord, please. And just rid us of this, this filth in us. Deliver me, Lord, from the anger that I know is in me. And I pray you do the same in whatever it is, my brothers and sisters. Lord, have your way with us tonight. Get us home safely. Bless our day tomorrow. And Lord, help us to be aware. And thank you, Lord, for being more aware about what's happening than we could ever possibly understand. Thank you for fighting battles that we can't even see. Thank you for going before us and protecting us from things that we can't even, we don't even know is coming yet, Lord. Thank you for watching out for us, Lord. Thank you for your guardian angels. Lord, you tell us that there are angels who are sent to minister to the heirs of salvation, and we are. We are the heirs of salvation, and you protect us. Would you please continue to, everyone in this room? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.